Well, would you guys turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5? That's where we are today. Ephesians 5. I'm going to, before I get into the text for today, I want to remind us of what has already been said. Um, chapter 4, Paul spent uh, promoting unity in the church. He was saying, look, I'm asking you guys to be united in the Spirit of God and in the unity Christ has purchased. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. And what it looks like to put on the new life that Christ has purchased for us. Some of the ways that actually is going to you know, flesh itself out is by you know, not speaking deceitful words. Not being dishonest. Not, not being schemy and, and dis, um, disingenuine. But we're speaking the truth in love. Um, he says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. If you used to steal before Christ saved you, now go and work so that you can benefit and provide for other people's needs. And he says, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth and, and uh, build people up with your words instead of tearing them down and discouraging them from following Jesus. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Be kind to one another and forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So with all the list of things to do and not to do that at least Paul wants to emphasize here in Ephesians 4, um, the Christian life isn't limited to the list in Ephesians 4, but he is saying to do a few things. Look, stop lying, stop stealing, change the way you live. Let the Spirit of God lead your life and forgive one another just as God has forgiven you. And so now God actually becomes the model, Jesus actually on the earth displaying what perfect humanity ought to be like. He becomes the model, and he becomes the one that I imitate. Now, we're going to go right into chapter 5 now, and, and Paul's going to continue this idea of the new life in Christ, what it means to live as new creation, what it means to live as beloved children of God. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he's going to say, Therefore, okay, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And so the big question that we're going to answer today is, what is God's will for my life on a daily basis? As a believer, I trust in Jesus. I believe the gospel. I know I see fruit in my life of, of my salvation. What do I do on a daily basis? What is God's will for me today, tomorrow, and every other day until he calls me home? And this should give you a deeper understanding of that, okay? So verse 1 says, therefore, I love that, because God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And I love that he tags that on. He doesn't just say, just do what God does. He doesn't say that. He says, since you are beloved children of God, like since you have been changed and your nature has been recreated, it's appropriate and reasonable for you to imitate your father whose nature you inherit. Right, whose, whose ways that you carry, who's given you a new heart and a new mind. So be imitators of copy God. Imitate him in his ways as beloved children. Children copy the tendencies of their parents or whoever's raising them. That's just what kids do. I don't know if you've ever seen children, whether they do it intentionally or not to mock them. Children will take on certain characteristics of their parents and they'll copy what their parents do and how they do it. They want to be like mom and dad. And so as beloved children of God, I should want to be like my father on the earth. I should want to be like my heavenly father. So here's what he's going to say. He doesn't just generically say, imitate God. He's going to tell us what he means. And walk in love. 
walk in love as Christ Jesus loved us and as he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God the Father. So it's interesting, okay? I want you to track with what Paul's saying. He says, imitate God. Look at Jesus who imitates or who models for us perfect love because God is love. So I want you to see the subtle connection between God and Jesus that Paul is making. He's not making any really clear distinction between Yahweh and Jesus. Now, Jesus being the second person in the Godhead, God the Son, he's not God the Father or God the Spirit, but he does say in verse 1, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Jesus did. In other words, look at Christ. If you want to know what a perfect life looks like, if you want to know what the fullest human experience looks like, if you want the best possible life here on earth, just walk like Jesus did. Just copy him. And what exactly does Paul want to emphasize about Christ? Well, Jesus loved us. He loved us. And he gave himself up. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And yes, Jesus' obedience to the point of death on a cross was in, was in submission to the Father. It was to glorify the Father. But it was for our benefit because he loves us. I hear some preachers take it so far where they're like, Jesus didn't think anything of us. It was just all about obeying the Father. Jesus didn't care a lick about us. It was just about doing the will of God. Really? So there's no love Christ had for his people, no love he had for his bride, no, no desire to lay down his life for the benefit of others. I think it's both and. I don't know how you could strip the cross of love. You can't strip the atonement of Christ of the love that was portrayed there. So he gives himself up for us. And this is the love Paul's asking us to, to copy. He's, get, he's going, look, imitate God as beloved children and love like Jesus did. This is the main point of what Paul wants to drive home as he's going to start to close Ephesians in chapter 6. He wants us to know there is a better and higher way of living, and it's called loving like Christ did. And that kind of love looks like giving up self for the good of another, for the benefit of another, so that someone else's life is better. That's what it looks like. So if we're going to define love Biblically, there's always an element of self-sacrifice involved, a degree to which I give up my, my own preference, my own agenda, my own desires, my own gain and benefit. There, there's a degree to which I chose not to benefit me as much as I could have because I chose to benefit you. Love seeks the ultimate benefit of another. So we live in a culture where it's like, love is love. Love everyone how they are and as they are. We equate love with approval. We equate love with put your hand of applause for on everything and hand of approval on everything that everyone does and don't at all show any disagreement. Don't disagree. Don't come against anything anyone does or is. Everything about a person, you must approve of that. You must applaud it. You must be for it. Or you don't love them. We live in a culture like that. Biblically, love seeks the benefit of another. And guess what? Guess what? Sometimes what is most beneficial to someone is going to be offensive to them. So, if you are, okay, 
if you're going to choose, and a lot of people twist this, if you had to choose between not offending someone and keeping them from what benefits them most in the name of not offending them, would you rather do that or would you rather present to someone and move them into what benefits them most even if it comes off offensive? Even if it comes off as offensive? I would choose, if, if we're going to talk about love, love is not considering, hmm... How do the how do the feelings not get hurt? That's not ultimate priority. That's a consideration. But love is not mostly concerned with not offending, not not bothering, not annoying, not not you know, creating some kind of feelings. Love goes, "Hey, what will be most helpful, most beneficial to the person in front of me?" And if I have to help them towards that, and by doing so, they are offended. I'm willing to risk that in order for them to enter into a better way of life. We live in a culture where it's like, don't bother. Don't step on toes. We're easily offended. Everyone's on edge. We are touchy. And God's going, no, actually love lays down self for the good of another, which sometimes means you're risking the relationship to bring someone into a better way of life. You're risking what you have with another so they can experience something better. I'm not trying to, to high-five everyone and get the approval and applause of everyone I, I, I can possibly get. That's not life. That's not life. That's benefiting me, but it's at the expense of others experiencing a better life. And so if Jesus is the model, did Jesus offend a crap ton of people? He did. Did he do it intentionally and walk around just going, how can I just destroy some people today? How can I step on toes and piss people off? This is not how Jesus lived. What he did was, I, every, this is what Jesus says, everywhere I go, I do what I see the Father doing. And if it's going to possibly offend someone, if it's risky, and it's for the benefit of another, and it's because I love them, and it's the Father's will, I'll do it. I mean, think about it. Jesus offended to the point that someone, a group of people, condemned him to a cross and nailed him to a tree, right? He gave his, his preference, his will, his agenda up. He laid himself down as an offering to God. Not just an offering, but for our benefit and as an offering to God. So verse 3 says, look, I want you to see the connection here. Paul's going to make it abundantly clear, okay, crystal clear, that if you want to live the fullest life possible, what Christ has purchased for you, okay, what he's made available to you through his beautiful life, death, and resurrection, he's made available an entirely new way of life, which is a lifestyle of love. In other words, God has enabled and made possible for us to walk in the love of Christ. And that love is going to bother people. It is going to piss people off. You just naturally loving and seeking the ultimate eternal benefit of another is going to make people really angry. Just like Jesus. He said, look, if you're going to follow me, guess what? You're going to be persecuted. If they persecuted the master, what, what are they going to do to you? So Paul is going, you, if you want to imitate God, if you want to live the fullest life, it starts with self-denial. It starts with putting a stake in the ground and saying, I'm not going to live for me because I'm not the center of the universe. 
I'm not the best thing there is to live for. He is. So I'm going to live for him, the one who made me, gives me life, sustains me, laid down his life so I could live and enter into relationship with him. And, and what that looks like is self-denial. Saying, I know I want this. I know I feel this. I know this will benefit me at the expense of others. But I'm going to choose to move that to the side so that someone else can experience a better way of life because I'm alive. And look at how Paul's going to transition from verse 2 to verse 3. He's going to go from self-sacrificial love down to sin. Okay? He's going to go from, hey, lay down self it's beautiful to benefit others, even when it's at my own expense. It's beautiful. And then he's going to enter into verse 3 and say, hey, don't let yourself be stained by the sin that Christ paid for. Okay, it doesn't mean that you don't have an advocate and there's no defense attorney pleading your case. It doesn't mean there's no forgiveness. It just means what's proper for a believer is to pursue, actively desire a lifestyle of holiness. That's what's appropriate. Okay, so... I really want you to see the connection Paul is making here. I, this is a very strong friggin' statement. Love and sin cannot coexist. You are never loving someone while simultaneously disobeying God. Because to enter into love for people assumes I am aligned with the heart and the ways of God. So we look at the Ten Commandments as like the moral law. You follow that, you get into heaven. It's how you live a good life. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, just lay out for us what it looks like to perfectly love people. Hey, don't steal. Hey, look, don't murder people. What a revelation. If you want to love someone, you probably don't want to take their life, you know? So the Ten Commandments lay out for us not just the perfect moral standard of God that we fall short of, but now that I'm in Christ, that he's fulfilled that law for me, it lays out how to properly and effectively love people. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't commit idolatry, right? Love and obey parents. All these different things. Loving neighbor is the most practical way to love God. There's no such thing as, I love God, but screw people. It's not, it's not a thing. God has made people in his image whom he very much loves and values and delights in and wants to be in relationship with him. For me to treat them differently or less than what God wants me to is a violation of his law. So whenever we dishonor God, disobey him, you are violating the law of love. And I know I just went on tangent. I'm not reading scripture. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints okay in other words look if you're a believer it's not appropriate for you to continue living a lifestyle of sexual immorality and impurity and coveting and and wanting what someone else has and and comparing to the point that i just long for what others have and i neglect what i do have that's not proper for believers <clears throat> the new life that i have in christ okay where i've been set free and i'm redeemed and i'm a child of god that new nature and new life is now compatible with a certain way of living What's appropriate for my new self in Christ is that I stay away from sexual sin. 
is that I stay away from impurity. I stay away from covetousness. And when I fall into it, look, there's an advocate. There's forgiveness, which is not a license to sin, right? But what's proper for believers is to pursue holiness and righteousness and to actually desire to obey God. What that looks like is staying away from the stains of this world and not being polluted and corrupted by the sin that pervades our world. So I want you to see that Paul starts with love like Jesus. And then he goes into stay away from sin. And you're like, ah, can I do one or the other? And Paul's like, no, you either love and you're staying away from, you know, what stains you or, or you're not loving. Now, I want to be careful here. I am not saying that a believer can't be loving if they struggle with sin. What I am saying is whenever you sin, you are not simultaneously loving. Because again, to disobey God, to violate his commandments, that's a violation of the law of love. So there's no such thing as I'm going to go out and love people according to my own definition and standard. You either love according to God's standard, which is laid out in the Ten Commandments, or you don't love at all. You know what I mean? So God has laid out for us how to love. Not just He's not just empowered us to love and modeled for us perfect love. He tells us how to love. You want to love? Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't commit idolatry. Your personal sin is a violation of love, even when it's in secret. Even when because it, it's a violation of your love for God. You guys not affecting anyone. Your sin eventually is going to leak into every other relationship you have. If you're like, this is just between me and God. No one's, no one's bothered by it. You have no idea. You have no idea how sin is like a, like a, like a hand grenade. The shards, when it explodes, okay, someone is going to get hit by the shards of that thing. So you can't say my personal sin has no impact on people because Paul's making a connection between loving people and not tolerating sin. Look, if I'm a believer and I tolerate sin and I'm like, it's cool, I'm forgiven. I'm excusing what Christ had to pay for with his precious blood, what he died to set me free from. I'm excusing and I'm tolerating. And I'm like, it's cool, I'm living in it. He set me free. No, you're living in slave, bro. Sin is enslaving. And yes, you're forgiven even when you stumble and struggle. But I just want you to see, I am a more effective vessel to love people the more I am free from the sin of this world. The, the, more, the, the less attached I am to the world and the sinfulness of this world, the more effectively I can love people. You don't tell me your personal sin doesn't impact your, your ability to love. It says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. There's that kind of language again. Look, you know what's proper for believers now that you're in Christ and you're seated in heavenly places? What's proper is that you would stay away from sexual sin, impurity, covetousness, and don't let foolish talk, crude joking, or filthiness come out of your mouth. This isn't just about what I do in private. This is about how I talk to people in public. This is about how I treat people, period. Paul's addressing both. Look, when you guys gather, don't let sin be named among you. When y'all live your individual lives, 
Don't tolerate and excuse sin in the name of, well, I'm just not around believers, so no one's going to get hurt. So don't let your mouth be a, be a way through which evil enters into the world. My mouth can actually release some pretty dark things, some pretty messed up things. I can say some pretty evil stuff. And filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, it's out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. When you gather with, un with, with believers, specifically, not only, but specifically, when you gather with believers, there's no excuse to tolerate crude joking in your conversations or to excuse foolish talk, which is that which violates edification. In other words, you go, well, what's, what constitutes as filthy speech? What, what's, what's foolish talk really mean? Here's what it means. Anything that dishonors God or tears down people and discourages them in their walk with Christ. Anything, because you can use your words to build up and strengthen and fortify and move people towards Jesus, or you can use your mouth, right, to make people discouraged and to bring them down and to burden them and to hurt them and to actually discourage them from following Jesus and to, and to corrupt their faith. Your words can do that. So if that's going to come out of your mouth, let's not do that, right? Let's not do that. Crude joking is out of place. And I love how Thanksgiving is um, really the only other option at this point. I think of the Israelites in the wilderness. Think with me. When did the Old Testament Israelites in the wilderness use their mouth or their words to dishonor God? Any idea? Can you guys think of any time where the Israelites in the wilderness used their words or their mouth to dishonor God and then it resulted in judgment? I can think of quite a few. And it's mainly complaining. Complaining, gossiping, slandering Moses, gossiping behind, their, behind Moses' back when they let their doubt come out of their mouth. Yeah. When they speak anything, now watch this. As believers, we need to increase our standard for our, the way that we talk. I think we've we've brought, we have such a low standard for our speech. Anything that violates the character of God, the word of God, the nature of God, the will of God, or the people of God, anything that does that contradicts those things. I probably shouldn't say it. I know there's room for like neutral things. As like, well, about this TV shows? No, no, it's neither. It's not. It's not a violation, nor is it a help. Well, that's that's fine. All I'm saying is gossiping, slandering, um, breaking people down, um, judging unrighteously with words, um, complaining. I just think about the Israelites complaining a lot. Complaining they didn't have food. Now, 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 granted, these are like legitimate concerns. They really feared they would die. But, but the way they express those concerns, as if to accuse Yahweh of not taking care of them and complaining. So, I just want you to know there's a lot, there's a lot more um, 
to add to these categories of filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. There's a lot that we don't think about. I'm just saying, I think we need to really take our words a little more seriously and increase our standard a bit. Like believer, don't just have a high standard for how you live. Have a high standard for how you speak, for how you like talk to people. And use your mouth apparently for thanksgiving. That's, that's what's honorable to God. I can either thank him and express my gratitude and worship him with my words and, and meditate on his truth and pray that truth. Or, right, I can let my words <clears throat> be governed by foolishness and filthiness and crude joking. And again, as we move forward, the overall idea is love like Christ loved you. Love self-sacrificially. And he's telling us how to practically do that. It's, it's implicit. Obviously, it's not like explicitly clear. But in other words, he's saying, look, here's how you love like Christ did. Don't let sexual immorality be a part of your life. Don't let impurity or covenants be a part of your life. Don't let foolish talk or crude joking or filthy speech come out of your mouth. Because that's a violation of the law of love. There is a way to love people. If we don't have a standard or a definition for what love is, then there, there, there's and we can't agree on this, the term, then just whatever, you know what I mean? We can't even like effectively love people if we can't define it. If there's no standard for what love looks like, then you can't tell me I'm not loving and I can't tell you you're not loving and love is just this open door kind of thing where anyone can do whatever they want and call it love and there's no real definition, no, no real standard to meet. But if love is explained very clearly in the scriptures and is laid out, by the law of God. Well, then we have a standard by which to measure our interactions with people and to measure our words. So I just want you to see like Thanksgiving is juxtaposed to filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. That seems to be the other like option, right? It's you can either use your mouth to break people down and dishonor God or you can be thankful and you're like, well, what's the other option? Well, Thanksgiving is, is the only other option really. Because that's where you're, when you're talking about God and his word and you're praising him and worshiping him, it's, it's gratitude. Now, granted, there are prayers where we're just sad. You know what I mean? I'm not feeling that thankfulness. I come to God with a broken, contrite spirit. And I'm just weak and I'm overwhelmed and I'm burdened and I'm confused and I'm tired and, and I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. I think the, the point is, when you are specifically in the context of church fellowship, when you're around other people, okay, this doesn't mean I talk differently in front of people than I do behind their backs and when I do in private. The point is there, there's, a, there's a real um, concern when I'm around people for how I'm talking because other people are hearing. Now, I am concerned about a God's opinion most. It's not that I'm concerned with people's opinions. I'm concerned with how my words are impacting and affecting them. Okay, that's what I'm concerned with. So in private, I'm still concerned with God's opinion and how my words honor or dishonor him. But if there's no one around, then um, no one's going to be negatively influenced by my words, even when I say something wrong. But it's, it is still dishonoring to the Lord. So I just wanted to lay that out there. So verse 5 says, you can be sure of this. Watch. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Is that, is that pretty strong language? It is. Now, he's not saying 
people who struggle with coveting, people who struggle with sexual sin, people who struggle with impurity, they have no inheritance in God's kingdom. He's saying people who are these things, everyone who is sexually immoral, is impure, is an idolater. Like if that is the summation of who you are and your sin actually defines you because you're disconnected from Christ and you don't believe the gospel, all you have is sin. That's, that's all that can explain you. On a judgment day, God's not going to look at any good things you do if you don't trust in Christ. If you're not covered in the righteousness of Jesus, all you have to present God on the day of judgment is sin. And so that sin actually sums up who you are in the sight of God if you're not in Christ, if you don't believe the gospel. People who are outside of God's people, people who are outside the family of God, they're actually... I, I, I don't hate to say it, but I have to say it. They are actually defined by their sin until they come to Christ and they have a new position, a new identity, a new standing with the Father that Christ extends to them out of his grace. Until that happens, they are their sin. Like that actually the darkness that pervades their life, it does sum up who they are in the sight of God on judgment day. So Paul is saying, look, remember like there are people who aren't entering into God's kingdom because of their sin, because of their darkness. So why would I tolerate or approve of that in my own life if Christ laid his life down and had to bleed for that to be paid for? Why would I tolerate what Jesus had to pay for with his blood? Why would I excuse that? If it came at such a high price, if it required the life of the invaluable, priceless son of God, why would I excuse what he took very seriously, what God takes very seriously. Why would I excuse that? And again, it's out of place because the, the overall context is what is God's will for my life? How do I love like Jesus? Actually, one of the best ways you can love people is by avoiding sin, by honoring God with your life in, pu in public and in private. It, it positions you to be the most loving individual because when I am most like Jesus, I am the most loving I could possibly, possibly be because God is love and he came among us, dwelt among us. He was the perfect human in our place. He models what it looks like to be the perfect human being. So if I'm going to be the best version of me and the most loving to people, I need to be like Jesus. And what that includes is removing myself from sin and when i do struggle and fall into it i have an advocate and i had the forgiveness of my father who gave me a new life and a new standing and a new identity in christ but i can't tolerate what other people are being condemned for let no one deceive you and i love the inheritance language if you read john chapter 1 talks about how let me just take you there jesus gives us the right to become children of God. <clears throat> Where is it? John 1.12, there it is. To all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he actually gave the right. That's inheritance language. That's heirship. He gave the right to become a child of God. And these children of God, us, we're not born of blood or, or of the flesh or the will of man, but we're, we're born of the Spirit, we're born of God. So if you want to be a part of the inheritance of Jesus, 
if you want the kingdom of God to be a part of your inheritance, you've got to become a child of God to inherit what he has for you. God is not going to give his inheritance to people who aren't his kids. So Jesus shares his inheritance with people who have faith in what he's done and they become children of God and we inherit the kingdom. People who are living in sin and are defined by their darkness because they're disconnected from God, they have no share, no, no part in the kingdom of God because you don't just get into the kingdom. You don't come in on your own terms. You don't climb your way up. You don't force your way in. You're given access as a part of your inheritance. So the reason Paul brings in the inheritance language is because chapter 2, he's already explained, we used to be children of the devil, children of wrath. God had to reshape our nature through our faith and make us something new by the Spirit so that now I am fitted for inheriting the kingdom of Christ. I'm fitted for inheriting the kingdom of God. So let no one deceive you with empty words. This is what God's will is for you every day. What's, what, what does God want from you today? Well, he wants you to not give in to sexual morality. And the will of God is not summed up by a bunch of don'ts. You know what I mean? Oh, Christianity is just all, Christianity is just all about not doing certain things and what you can't do and what, you, what you're not allowed to. Following Jesus is liberating. It's freeing. You can do a lot. The things God tells us not to do is what's going to hurt us. Oh, what a, what, a, what a dumb thing, right? Oh, no, God's telling us not to do what's going to hurt us in the end. So sexual immorality, here's God's will for your life. Don't let impurity or covetousness be a part of your life. Don't talk in such a way where filthiness or crude joking is coming out of you. Don't, you know, let covetousness rule and govern your life. This is... We over-mystify, over-spiritualize the concept of God's will. Where it's like, does he want me to like walk on water today? Or should I like go out and cast out demons today? Or should I just like heal 30 people today? It's like, well, the supernatural is wonderful. I'll walk in it. Let's live in it. Let's see the power of God flow. But I think one of the greatest demonstrations of supernatural power is my ability to resist sin. It's one of the most supernatural things that can happen in a person's life is that you chose to resist the sin that once manipulated and, and imprisoned you. The sin that once controlled your life, somehow you have the power now to say no and resist it in the power of the Spirit. That's pretty supernatural. That's pretty spiritual. So here's what I would say. God's will for your life does include a lot of things not to do. But it opens me up to do the right things. I can't give my time and attention and affection to the right things if I'm consumed with the wrong things. So it, Christianity is not just do a lot of good things alongside your sin and you're good. And it's not just don't do a lot of things and avoid all the bad things and never do anything good for the kingdom. Just spend your life putting walls up, protect yourself from all sin and hide in a basement. That's not Christianity. Christianity is look... There's a lot of things I don't do so that I'm freed up to do the good things God's called me to. Because I can't have my time occupied by both sin and obedience. It's got to be one or the other. And at times I go up and down and I'm a roller coaster of a person. I'm inconsistent and I'm obeying sometimes. I'm not a, so I, I'm inconsistent. But the point is the, the overall trajectory of your life, the overall pursuit of your life should be holiness righteousness, 
to love like Jesus, to become more and more like Christ every day. That should be your pursuit. That should be your pursuit. And in the process, you say no to certain things and you say yes to God. That's God's will for your life. Let's keep going. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Okay? Because of these sinful things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who are in sin as children of the devil and condemned because of their evil, they are actually going to be separated from the Father. Okay? Because of their sin. So let no one deceive you. There are people entering into the Ephesian church or... Paul anticipates that they will. And they're going to come in and say, guys, God's forgiven us. Christ paid for our sin. It's cool. Sin's not a big deal. Just add Jesus to a lifestyle of sin and you're good to go. And Paul's going, heck no. That's garbage. That's absolute trash. Sin, evil, that's exactly why people are condemned. That's why they're under the wrath of God. That's why they're children of the devil. Because of their sin, because of their separation from the Father and their refusal of the gospel and their disobedience and their lack of faith, they don't want to trust in Christ. So they're under the penalty of sin. This is what Jesus says. Look, if you, if you, are, if you don't have faith in, in Jesus, you're under condemnation already. It's not that God puts you under something. You're already naturally under it because of the nature of your sin, which separates you from God. So don't, don't tolerate sin and you maybe should correct other people in your life who are tolerating sin and excusing it and getting other people to do it paul's saying don't let anyone deceive you apparently this is a deception is that sin is not a big deal apparently it's not just outside the church it's within the four walls of each individual community not that the church is a building but you know what i mean apparently this lie is not just outside the church, but in it. You got to be very careful who you are subconsciously or knowingly listening to. Because there are people in your life who are going to try and tell you. They're going to try and belittle sin. They're going to try and... They call themselves believers. They fellowship with you on Sundays and they do the Christian things. They go to the Bible studies. They feed the homeless. But they're going to try and minimize sin. It's not a big deal. Actually, sin is a huge deal. To minimize it is a dishonor to God, and it's an affront to the gospel. Like you're actually coming against the atonement of Jesus by saying sin is not a big deal. It's a very big deal. But there is a way to hyperemphasize it where sin is bigger than my Savior, and that's not correct either. Sin doesn't condemn me if I'm in Christ. Jesus is bigger. He's better. Sin doesn't leave me condemned because I struggle. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm righteous. I'm holy. I'm blameless in the sight of God. So sin doesn't affect my standing before the Father, but it is a big deal in that it, well, it, it, it minimizes or lessens my ability to be effective for God. Like if I want to be effective and love people well and honor God, I can't live in sin while thinking I'm doing good. Because sin is actually a violation of God's best for you. I'll say that again. Sin is a violation of God's best for you. It's, it's, it's actually opposed to it. The best for your life includes freedom from sin. And, and again, Christianity is, is not just about avoiding the bad things. 
It's about pursuing the right things. Because I know people get it twisted. They think they're good because of all the stuff they avoid. But they don't do any good for anyone else. They ain't out there feeding the homeless, preaching the gospel, building the church, serving people with their gifts, building ministries. They're not out there giving generously to people who are struggling. They're just avoiding a lot of things. And they, they get self-righteous for it. And you got to be careful. You have to be very careful. Not only do I have to be careful to avoid people who, who tell me sin's not a big deal. Well, not your friend. I can't stay around you anymore. I'm going to correct you, but we can't be in fellowship as well as we could be. I should also avoid the lie that says I'm righteous because of all the things I avoid. You're righteous because Jesus has made you righteous. Like you're holy because God has graciously made you holy. You're not holy or righteous because of what you avoid. Now, you can live holy and live righteous by avoiding sin, but that doesn't make you any more holy or righteous in the sight of God than Christ has already made you to be. So there is, there is some tension here. I don't want to minimize sin, but I also don't want to make it such a big deal where I avoid it and I feel self-righteous or I give into it and I feel condemned. I, I got to avoid both these extremes. Okay, so verse 7 says, Therefore, don't become partners with them. Those who are not inheriting the kingdom of God, don't link arms with them and engage in the same sin that they're engaging in. Okay, that's dumb. If you're light and they're darkness and you're holding hands going different directions, it seems pretty, pretty silly. <clears throat> And by the way, if you guys have questions or want to stick around for the Zoom call in about 30 minutes and receive prayer and fellowship and share your questions, um, please do join the Zoom prayer call. Everyone is welcome except trolls. You don't have to talk. You don't have to show your face. But whoever would like to join the Zoom prayer call after this, you can share your questions that I don't get to here. Um, you can ask for prayer and all that. So the... Zoom prayer call link is in my bio. If you're on TikTok or if you're on YouTube, it's in the description below. The password is Jesus and we'll be on at 1130, which is in 40 minutes. 40 minutes. So look at verse 7. Therefore, don't become partners with them. Why? Because at one time you were the darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Now, I want you to really think about what Paul is saying here. He doesn't say you were in the darkness. It's true you were. But Paul takes it a step further. You weren't just in something. You were something. Like, you used to be the essence of darkness. That, that's all you had. Because you were spiritually disconnected from God. And your spirit was dead. And you were a child of the devil. And you were aggressively... Um, uh, violent and, and, and angry toward God and all of us expressed that differently and we used to be in unbelief and we had the nature of the devil who used to be you know by nature our father and we were the darkness but now look at the change this isn't something that progressively takes place well you'll be the light eventually no the minute you believe you become light like you become the epitome of light in Christ so Jesus, who is the light of the world, he includes you 
in his inheritance, and he makes you alive through your faith, and he makes you light, spiritual light. Whereas we used to be darkness. That's pretty strong language. Paul would not be accepted in our society today. Paul would not be liked by a lot of people. Going around telling people, you are darkness. We're in the darkness? No, you are darkness. Oh, but if you're a believer, now you're light. So walk as children of light. I love that. And I say this a lot, okay? I say this a lot, but I really think it, it's necessary. God change your, changes your nature before he asks you to change your lifestyle. A lot of Christians think when they get saved, they have to change their life to stay saved or to really earn salvation and finish the job. God says, look, trust in my son to change your nature and give you a new life. Then you'll walk in obedience and your life will change. My life is an expression or reflection of my nature, right? So my nature needs to be changed if I want to follow Jesus. Because if I'm the darkness and I'm in sin and I'm separated from God and I, and I want to walk on the path of light, my nature is not compatible with the lifestyle that God wants for me. So God actually changes the core of who you are, your essence, your nature. He changes everything so that you're given a new life. And now you are light. Now you can actually go out and do what God has asked you to do and desired of you to do because your nature is fitted for it. You're actually compatible with the good works God wants to accomplish through you. That's good news. God doesn't ask you to do things that you're not fitted for. He actually empowers you to do everything he's called you to do. He's made everything available. You have everything in Christ. You lack nothing. Like he said, everything you need to live a life of godliness and live the fullest human experience, this side of heaven, God makes available to you in his son. So walk like children of light. And again, the overarching idea is love like Jesus did, self-sacrificially, Benefit other people in love. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. In other words, this is what a lifestyle of spiritual light looks like. Your life will look good. Your life will look right. And it'll be embodied by the truth. Or it'll embody the truth. Okay? So verse 10. And for those of you that don't know, we have a Discord community. I thought I'd share that. Join the Discord community if you want fellowship daily with believers uh, we have uh what's it called what's it called uh voice chats and then we're always talking in there uh, i'm i jump in when i can but it's a bunch of people who love jesus if you want community come join the discord and we're going to jump on a zoom call in about 35 minutes um to pray with one another and to fellowship and to share insights and ask questions so i encourage you guys to be there the password is jesus and the Zoom call link is in the YouTube description. And if you're on TikTok, it's in my profile, okay? And it's in about 30 minutes. So we're not jumping on yet, but I'll, I'll tell you when we're jumping on. So there's not just a standard for loving. There's a standard for living. Living a holy life means that I'm loving people. But the lifestyle God calls me to 
which includes loving, the lifestyle he wants us to live is, is one that is good and right and true. It honors God, it's correct, and it's, it, it's, it's in alignment with the truth of God's word. And then verse 10 says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What is God's will for your life today? To live like children of light. To not go back to the darkness. To not go back to and partner with people who are in the darkness, but to pull them out of the darkness. And to shine the light of Christ into their darkness. And every day, this is God's will for you, to try and discern what is pleasing to Him at any given moment. At any given moment, regardless of whom I, who I'm in front of, regardless of what's happening, regardless of where I am, regardless of how I feel, my concern, my filter, the standard for my life should be what is pleasing to my Father, what honors His name. And what honors Him and pleases Him is love, is that I would love people made in His image. Now watch, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them hold on someone said the discord link is invalid i might need to change that in the youtube description give me one sec i'll do this real time i fix i fix um, i'll do i share give me one sec Privacy. I just want to share. Let me do this. Sorry, give me one sec. I want to make sure people have access to the Discord community. Because it'll bother me if I know people don't have access. So here is Discord link right here. There we go. I just needed to fix that. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That, that assumes you're actually attempting to do it. That assumes you desire to discern God's will. And you're actively pursuing that and actively attempting to do that. There, there seems to be, there seems to be on the part of Christians every day, this is God's will for you, an intentional, active, pursuit of what honors God an intentional active pursuit of what honors God there seems to be an, an aspect of I'm moving towards and I'm actually doing my part to discern what is honoring to God in this moment that's God's calling on your life each day is to just go what does scripture say about my father what does the Bible say about how I should live and act in this moment and the decision I should make when you discern what is pleasing to the Lord, underlying that idea is an assumption that you know the Word of God well enough to actually have that knowledge inform your decisions. In other words, you're letting your understanding of Scripture inform how you're doing certain things or what you're doing at any given moment. So you need to know the Word of God and know your Father in order to discern what honors Him in order to discern what is pleasing to him. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, I love that Paul goes, hey guys, just try and just do your best to like discern what is pleasing to God as you live life. Here's, here's what I know God's will is. 
He wants you to not participate in the unfruitful darkness, right? God's will is actually for you to expose the darkness. So watch. I'm not just taking a passive position as a believer on the sidelines going, I'm just trying not to sin. That's not the lifestyle of a believer. I am trying not to sin, and I am, but I'm also actively shining the light into the darkness. And I'm involved, and I'm getting in people's lives, and I'm exposing the darkness with my light. I'm not just on the sidelines trying not to give in to darkness. I am avoiding the darkness as I'm actively moving the darkness and pushing it out of people's lives. That's what, the, that's what God's will is for you today. He says, look, son, daughter, this is what I want for you today. Don't participate in the sin of this world. And you go, okay, I got that down. Whew, I'm done. He says, no, I'm, I'm not done with you. I want you to actually expose the darkness in the world. And you go, oh, that's uncomfortable. He goes, I know. I know. Everyone who desires to live a life of godliness will be persecuted. Everyone who's just minding their own business, trying to honor God with their life, you will attract persecution. It's like a magnet. Holiness attracts persecution. Righteousness, honoring God, you're going to piss off some devils in the process. And they're going to come after you. Your job is to stand your ground and continue exposing the darkness. And you go, how? Well, evangelism. Well, discipleship. Well, getting in church community and actually doing your part to share your gifts and help people grow. Um, it's living holy. It's living righteous. It's knowing your Father better each day in His Word. It's, it's spending time in the presence of God so that you're equipped to go and dispense the light of God into the darkness and dispel the darkness. You need to expose sin, not just tolerate it, not just turn a blind eye, not just ref, you know reject it, but actually expose it. It, you're on the attack. You get that, right? Like when Jesus says the the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom, right? He tells Peter, look, on this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell can't even stand against the church. We're on the, off we're on the offensive. We're on the attack. We're not cowering in a, in, a, in a safe place from the darkness of this world. We're actually on the attack. We're moving the darkness back. We're advancing God's kingdom. We're winning territory for our Father as He moves through our lives. So when I say don't participate in sin, the self-righteous part of you goes, got that. That's, that's only part of the equation. Avoid sin so you're capable of exposing sin. If you expose sin while you're living in it, you're a hypocrite. And you grow self-righteous. And you start looking at the small speck of dust in someone else's eye when you got a freaking, you know, seashore of, of sand in your own eyes, right? So don't participate in sin. Instead, expose it. And exposing the darkness at any given moment is going to look different each time. Sometimes it's preaching the gospel. Sometimes it's calling out a specific sin in my brother or sister's life. Sometimes... It's noticing that I'm, I'm around unbelievers and I got to strike up the courage to say something and tell them their lifestyle is not going to get them into heaven. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And guess what? It's not just talking about sin in other people's lives and sin in the world around you. It first starts with sin inside of you. 
again, you can't effectively take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye while you got a full-blown redwood sticking out of both your eyes. You can't see. You can't make an appropriate decision. You can't be helpful. So this isn't just about exposing darkness in other people's lives. This is mainly about exposing sin in your own life, bringing it before God, saying, search my heart, show me, try me, show, show me the sin I don't see, Lord. Expose it, bring it to the surface, make me holy, help me to live different. Expose the sin in my own heart that I would be humbly at your feet, that I'd stay dependent on you, and that I'd also grow in holiness to be effective for you. So again, instead of participating in sin, expose sin in your own life. What a difference. What a difference. It's like, I used to live in sin. Now I'm constantly before the Father going, rip it out, expose it, bring it to the light. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that unbelievers do in secret. That's what Paul says. There are some things you and I shouldn't even talk about. Shouldn't even be on our lips. It's dishonorable. It's shameful. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now Paul has already said, you are not darkness anymore. You are light in the Lord. You're not the light of the world because you're awesome. You're the light of the world because of who you're seated next to in heavenly places. You, you and I are seated in Christ. We're positioned in Jesus. I'm locked into him. His identity becomes my own. As the perfect resurrected human, he shares his identity with me. So I can walk like a child of God now. I can live like a child of God now. And when the light shone into my heart, the darkness was dispelled and I became light. Now I get to go and do that on a daily basis for my own sin and for the lives of others. So when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now watch, he's talking about exposing sin. He's talking about how we came to the light and we became the light. Now he's going to quote here uh, a combination of different passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 60, even Malachi 4. It's like a conglomeration of Old Testament scriptures right here. And Paul is going to quote a passage where Yahweh talks to Israel. And he says, wake up, Israel, wake up from your slumber. In other words, come out of your sin. Come out of your sin. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, there are two ways to read this. One way is, Paul is talking about unbelievers who are asleep and spiritually dead and need to come alive. The only problem I see with that is that Paul is telling the person to get up from the dead themselves and to wake up as if they're capable of doing it on their own. But when it comes to salvation, I can't save myself. I can't make myself spiritually alive. All I can do is trust in Jesus, and he does that to me. So that's one of the issues I see right here when, it, when people say, this is talking about unbelievers and Christ shining on them. You can still say that if you want. There's no big deal. 
because the context couldn't could support that that how you used to be the the darkness now you are the light christ shines on you and we're raised from the dead but i i tend to think of it as he's talking to believers <laughs> and the context is he's telling them not to engage in sin and in the darkness he's talking to people who are the light already and they're already spiritually alive in christ okay so I think it's more appropriate to the text to say that Paul is talking to believers who are maybe dabbling in sin and entertaining sin a little bit and, and going back to the darkness and excusing him. But we're forgiven, right? And he's saying, wake up. Wake up. Stop messing around. Like the time is short. You're not promised tomorrow. You could stand before the living God at any given moment. And, and this isn't an issue of salvation. This is an issue of faithfulness. If you're in Christ, you want to give Jesus the best possible. Stop living asleep. Stop walking around like a, like a, like a zombie who's half, half dead, half alive. Wake up from the dead. Get up. And then Christ will shine on you to expose the sin in your life. Uh, that's how I read this text. Now, if we go back to Isaiah, Paul is, or God is calling Israel to repentance to come back to him because they're spiritually dead. So you could also take that if you want and say this is... We can say both and. Okay, well, let's confidently say... Paul is talking, look, if you're an unbeliever, trust in Jesus. That's how you wake up from the dead. That's how you are made spiritually alive. And when you trust in him, he shines on you and makes you the light. Now, if you're a believer, wake up. Stop tolerating and entertaining sin. And those shows that you're like, ah, I know every time I watch it, I start to embody these ways. And, and I get comparative and jealous. And I always feel like lustful after. It's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll repent of it after. Stop entertaining music that you know leads you, drives you into deeper depression. Stop, stop tolerating people in your life who you know push you away from God. And every time they call you to hang out, you're like, I know what's about to happen. Let's do it anyway. I'll ask for forgiveness later. Stop. Stop messing around. The time is short. You're not promised tomorrow. Wake up. Get up from the dead. Stop going back to the deadness of your old life and let Jesus expose the sin in you and the darkness so you can live effectively right let jesus position yourself to be exposed daily which that's a call for some of you some of you need to sit with the lord and say expose me and that's scary some of you are terrified for that you're terrified to be fully known and admit that you're sinful and admit weakness and admit that you need help that's terrifying good thing he's a loving father who knows you perfectly before you ever expose yourself to him he sees you he sees right through your fake facade. He sees right through all your self-righteous works that you brag about. He sees right through you. And he knows you and he's calling you to wake up and stop tolerating what's killing you. And he's calling you to come out of the darkness. Don't have one foot in and be like, I'm the darkness on Monday and Tuesday. I'll be the light Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, okay? No, be the light every day. Stop tolerating sin on a daily basis. Stop excusing it. Stop saying it's seasonal. I'll get out of this eventually. Like there's repentance, there's forgiveness, but it is time to wake up. It is time to stop messing around and stop going, oh, I'll, I'll really stop, you know, win this and, and I'll get over this Well, when I'm really, really done. Get over it now. Like ask God to expose sin in you now and don't wait later. Don't wait till later. Look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully then. I love this. There's careful, intentional evaluation of your life. If you're going to walk as wise children of God, now again, the overall context 
the overall context is love like Christ. Guess what? If you're going to love people, you cannot be tolerating sin in your own life. It, it cripples your effectiveness. It kills your ability to really love people well. By having personal sin and gossip and slander and you being judgmental and you being, you know, a hypocrite behind the scenes and you tolerating these self-righteous judgmental thoughts about people and you slandering people behind their backs, it's killing your ability to love. So not only, that, that's why I think here when Paul essentially says, look, every single day you are alive, carefully evaluate how you're living I think that supports the idea in the previous verse that Paul's calling believers to sit before the Lord and say, search me, search me, because God sees your life clearer than you do. He knows what adjustments need to be made. He knows what sin needs to be rooted out that you don't see. He knows how to expose certain things to you in this very moment. You need to get before the Lord and say, Lord, expose me. Show me what I don't see. Bring up the sin in my life, the darkness that I'm unaware of or that I've been tolerating. Bring it up so I can actually evaluate my life appropriately. When Paul says, look carefully then how you're living, you can't assume your view of your life is always correct. You can't assume the way you see your current lifestyle is actually correct. What I need is perfect wisdom and the one who sees perfectly and I need his perspective to become my own. So when you're like, I'm living holy, that's fine. You might be. There might be areas where you are. But you're also ignoring areas of struggle and weakness that God wants to grow you out of to make you more effective in these areas. And the only way to see that is to sit with the Lord honestly, daily, and go, I can't afford to think I'm better than I actually am, Lord. I can't afford to think I'm holy when I'm missing out on darkness. I just know it. So, Lord, just like the psalmist prays, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. Show me the darkness I don't see because I, I, I don't want to walk around with an inflated, inaccurate view of myself. I want to have an appropriate view of me and my life. And that comes from sitting with you. And I need your perspective daily. The longer you go without getting God's perspective of your life, the more likely it is that you're walking around with, um, uh, you're walking in delusion. I think that's the good way to put it. The longer I go without asking God for his perspective of my life, the more likely I, I'm, I'm living in delusion in some areas. No one wants to be living in delusion. So when you live, this is God's will for your life, is to evaluate your life daily and don't assume that yesterday's obedience is sufficient for today. Don't assume that yesterday's godliness and righteousness and holiness and pursuit of God is enough for today. It's not. You need to daily evaluate your life and not just assume that yesterday I had a good view of me, so today I most definitely will. It's a new day, bro. It's a new day, new battles, new attacks from the enemy, and new opportunities to grow. So daily, I need to look at, honestly, ask the Lord for clear perspective of how I'm living and what I need to change today. There needs to be a fresh conviction 
each day. There needs to be a fresh revelation of the, the darkness that exists in my flesh so I'm not taken back and caught off guard. Because God can actually prepare you for the battles that you don't even anticipate. So this is God's will for your life today. Evaluate honestly in the presence of God. Evaluate how you're living. And ask God for a clear perspective of, of your lifestyle. Verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So if you want to make the best use of your life, which I don't believe anyone's going to go, nah, don't want that. Want to waste my life. I don't think anyone wants that unless they're absolutely dumb. For those of us that actually think critically and want to make the most of our life, here's how you do it. You need to daily and even like hourly evaluate how you're living and ask God for a clear view of what you're doing and how you're doing it. Because I can evaluate my own life and go, sweet, and then leave self-righteous and prideful. Or I can come before the Lord and go, show me what I don't see and leave humble yet motivated to grow. Because I think the, the perspective of God influences and encourages growth. Whereas my own human assessment will leave me complacent and lazy and thinking I've made it. I don't need to grow today because yesterday I evangelized to a homeless man, right? So today I'm good. I can take a break. And God's going, no, the days are evil. In other words, every day is full of evil, opportunities to sin. And if you're not prepared and equipped for those days and the evil that's coming your way, you'll find yourself not living wise, but unwise. And you'll make the not the best use of your time. Verse 17, therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. He's already said it once. In verse 10, he says, try to discern what is pleasing to God. He's saying it again. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you know what that means, believer? You and I don't have to wonder, what is God's will for me today? You can actually understand that will. To the degree God has invited you to know certain things, you can know that will. You can know what he wants you to know. You can know what he knows you need to know. You can know the will of the Lord today. You can know enough about our God to make educated decisions in the moment because scripture informs the decisions you're making. You can do that. You, apparently foolishness and wasting of the life that comes from not knowing my father. Like if you want to waste your life and not understand God's will and, and be foolish, by all means, don't spend time with God. Don't spend time with him. You'll make a wreck of your life quicker than you ever have. But if you daily go, Lord, I, I want to know you. Like I'm not even just here for direction and clarity. I want to know you, Lord. When you do that, your understanding of his will grows. And then throughout that day, that knowledge of God really informs your decisions so you make appropriate decisions, right? I want to make appropriate decisions. That requires me to know God and to understand his will. To understand his will. So verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine. This is what verse 18 says. Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit. So obviously God's will for my life 
is that I would not let wine or alcohol intoxicate and overtake me. So whenever I do that and I let alcohol overtake me and I get intoxicated and I find myself drunk and I find myself influenced and, and being almost manipulated by the alcohol in my body, I can know for certain I'm not, I'm not honoring God. I'm not honoring God. So look at the only other option here. You can either be filled with wine and controlled by alcohol when you're intoxicated or you can be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit is not a perfect parallel to being drunk with wine because being drunk with wine uh, assumes no control. I'm actually being controlled uh, somewhat against my will. I'm being somewhat controlled by alcohol and my vision is, is foggy and my ability to think is distorted and everything's all shaky. I don't control that. I don't control that. But when I'm filled with the Spirit... I'm willingly submitting my, myself and my will over to the Spirit saying, control me. I, I want you to lead me. I want you to, to move me. I want you to, 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 to drive my life. So one of the ways, here's, here's God's will for you today, guys. Don't get drunk. I know you're like, anything deeper, anything more supernatural? That can be the most spiritual thing some of you guys do is to put down the bottle is to actually not fill a glass tonight. That, that can be the most spiritual thing you choose to do because you can't be filled with wine and the Spirit. I'm never drunk and being led by the Spirit. Alcohol is, is ruling my decision-making process, not the Spirit of God. But when I'm free from alcohol and I'm not drunk, okay, the Spirit of God is governing my decisions. And I'm trusting and, and listening to him as I'm living life, not alcohol. So debauchery just, I think, means wickedness or like uh, excessive indulgence. Excessive, it's overconsumption might be a better word. Excessive indulgence. That's debauchery. Be filled with the spirit. You can't live wise and be drunk. You can't understand the will of the Lord and live in that and submit to the spirit and be filled with the spirit while you're drunk. And I know like, I get that that's offensive to some people who love their alcohol, who want to talk. I'm not saying alcohol is bad. I'm saying overconsumption and drunkenness is a violation of God's best for you. So verse 19 says, addressing one another. Here's what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. Okay. Watch. This is, this is what a spirit-filled life looks like. Now, we, in our 21st kind of century mind, we like to define being filled with the spirit. We like to define that on our own terms. And we go, well, when you're filled with the spirit, you'll see signs and wonders and miracles and demons cast out and people healed and, and, and people coming to Christ. That's a spirit-filled life. Hold on. I believe that those things happen as I follow Jesus. But I don't believe those are the only clear marks of what it looks like to be spirit-filled. Okay, here's what it means to be spirit-filled. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Being filled with the Spirit means that the truth of God is overflowing out of me into the lives of other people. 
through preaching, through evangelizing, through worship, through praise, through gratitude, through just having a conversation with another brother at a coffee shop. The truth of God flowing out of me is a mark that I'm filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Verse 20. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Thankfulness gratitude is actually a mark that you're filled with the spirit. You, you want to actually know what it looks like to walk around spirit filled gratitude, thankfulness. When I'm thankful and I find myself just, Oh man, caught up in gratitude to the Lord. I am filled with the spirit. Do you know what the opposite means when I'm complaining and arguing and like, you know, uh, accusing and judging and and comparing i'm not spirit filled i'm not spirit filled so if you uh, we over spiritualize these terms where it's like bro gratitude is just that's proof you're you're filled with the spirit if you're grateful and thankful today you are filled with the spirit this is what it looks like to let the spirit of god guide my life he guides me into a greater level of thankfulness he guides me into deeper gratitude. You could be doing all the signs and wonders and miracles and casting out demons. If there's no gratitude, if there's no truth flowing out of you and an appreciation of who God is, if there's no thankfulness, is it really spirit-filled or is it a lot of activity that looks spiritual? I'm just saying, Scripture gives us a pretty clear definition here in Ephesians 5. Of what it looks like to live spirit-filled. When you're filled with the Spirit, the truth of God will overflow in your conversation into the lives of others. You'll find yourself being thankful more. When I'm thankful, I'm spirit-filled. When I'm spirit-filled, I'm thankful. That's just what happens. When you're, um, when you're intoxicated, you, you see fog and you start stumbling over your words. And you can't really like interact with people in a, in a really intelligible way, you know? So just as there are marks and evidences that you're drunk, there are signs that you're filled with the Spirit at any given moment. Now, I'm not saying filled with the Spirit like in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a once for all kind of way. I'm talking in this moment, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I letting the Spirit of God lead my life? Thankfulness and gratitude will be there. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ now. Now, now, now. Submitting to one another out of reverence or love for Jesus. That's a sign that you're spirit-filled. Because do you remember how we started this whole thing in verse 1? Think of submission. Think of me going, I'm going to take my life and submit it to you for your benefit and your benefit and your benefit because I so revere Jesus, because I so love him, because I so reverence him. Out of that reverence and love for my God, I'm going to lay myself down in submission to you. He's not talking to wives. He's not talking to husbands. He's not talking to preachers and pastors only. He's talking to every believer across the planet. If you call yourself a Christian, submission is going to be your reality. This isn't just for certain roles in the church or certain roles in the family. This is every believer is going to submit their life 
to each other because you so revere and are thankful for what God has done. Now watch, to be filled with the Spirit is going to look like submitting myself to you for your good. Why? Because verse 1 told us that we're going to imitate God as beloved children. And we're going to walk in the love of Jesus. Now, what did Jesus' love look like? He gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, he submitted himself to the will of the Father for our benefit. If you're going to imitate Jesus and walk in love, you're going to do the same thing. So here's God's will for you today and every other day that you're alive on this earth. He wants you to imitate Jesus, who is perfect love, and really Him as the Father. Imitate God, who laid down His life in submission. Jesus willingly let Himself be arrested. Imagine looking at the people <coughs> that you created. The very people that you sustained and give life force to. And you're holding them together. All the while they're looking at you. And they're the criminals, but they're calling you the criminal. And Jesus hands himself over. He allows himself to be arrested. By the very people who he knew inside and out. And made them and sustained them. And they were criminals and he was not. He handed himself over. He let them drive nails into his wrists and his ankles. He let them whip him. He let them drive a crown of thorns into his head. He chose not to summon legions of angels. He stayed on that cross and he stayed there till it was finished. That self-sacrificial love where he submitted himself for our benefit out of reverence and love for the Father. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to live spirit-filled is when you're on your knees for the benefit of another when you lay down your agenda and your preference and your dreams and your vision board and you scrap it and you go, Father, I'm yours because I so love you and I'm so thankful for you and I revere you. So I submit myself for the benefit of your people. Use me. That's what it looks like to live spirit-filled. According to the text, and this is God's will for your life every day. Every day is to live spirit-filled and to submit yourself to others for their benefit out of love for Christ. And you're imitating. You're imitating God when you do that. What an honor. Let's just think about that. What a privilege to be able to say, I'm imitating God who is my father. Like I'm doing what he did. I'm doing what Jesus did. What an honor and a privilege to say that. The self-sacrificial love of Jesus. I get to actually copy that. I get to do that. That's an honor. That's an honor. And then Wednesday, we'll finish up chapter five, <clears throat> talk about submission in, in specific ways and all that. But for now, for those of you that don't know, this is my full-time job. This is how I support my wife and two kids. So if you'd like to find out about this ministry um, and check out our podcast and our YouTube channel, um, and our free Bible study courses, and my book, Fruitful, and our Discord community, all this stuff. And if you'd like to give to this ministry one time through Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, or become a monthly supporter through Patreon, and you get exclusive access to exclusive benefits, 
Um, if you'd like to check out all about this ministry, visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. The link is in the YouTube description below, as well as in my TikTok profile. Um, go there and you'll find all the ways to support and get involved and serve and join. And a couple things going on here. Every single week, we have live Bible studies, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Okay, And after that, we have a Zoom prayer room call. So in about, I don't know, five-ish minutes, we're going to have a Zoom prayer call. And we're going to share... Um, thoughts and fellowship and pray with one another so i encourage you guys to join in about five minutes the password is jesus but also every single weekday we have that zoom prayer call so even though i only have live bible studies monday wednesday and friday every weekday monday through friday we do have our zoom prayer call at 11:30 eastern standard time uh, which is now but we're running a little late so above reproach ministry.com the link is in my tiktok bio as well as the youtube description below if you guys want to learn how to read the Bible, every week I'm releasing a free online Bible study course. Every week. Uh, you heard that right. Every week there's going to be another free online Bible study course that I release, as well as a free devotional commentary. So this week's, um, hopefully I'm releasing this evening, this week's devotional commentary is like 50 pages. And there's areas for you to take notes and jot down your thoughts and prayers along the way but with each online course you're going to trace a keyword or a key phrase throughout the book of ephesians and you're going to build that out and you're going to look at all the deep wisdom and revelation that comes attached to that and you're going to learn right now we only have keyword courses in other words these online bible study courses are skills based and the skill that you'll develop is the ability to trace and recognize keywords in a in the bible and what to do with them so if you want to take these free online skills courses for, for Bible study purposes, just go to AboveReproachMinistry.com and start building those skills and learn how to read the Bible more effectively, okay? Uh, and be on the lookout for the uh, devotional commentary that gets released every week with that, um, with that online course. So every week there's going to be a free online Bible study skills course that's released as well as a devotional commentary that accompanies it that hopefully you can share and go through throughout the week and um, bring other people through. But in the meantime, um, if you guys like this shirt, you can get discounts by joining the Patreon community or you can just buy it at full price on our website. But in the meantime, in about four minutes, so add four minutes to your clock, okay? Set a four minute timer. In four minutes, we're gonna jump on a Zoom prayer call and we're going to hang out and uh, pray with one another and fellowship and talk through this. And if you want to ask questions, um, we're here to answer. So I'll see you guys in the Zoom call. The password is Jesus. And the Zoom link is in the YouTube chat. And in TikTok, just go to my profile and you'll see the TikTok, um, my bio. You'll see the Zoom link. Okay. So in four minutes, add four minutes, set a four minute timer. I'll see you guys there. Don't miss it.